This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 293. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Today, joined by my favorite co-host in the entire world, and yes, I'm kissing up to him, Jacob Paulson. I'm telling Matthew. <laughs> Definitely let him know that. Well, I have to. I have to do something, you know, to to make you feel better because recently we got a comment from a listener that really likes Matthew. And kind of felt bad yeah, for you, bro. In fact, bro. I think they kind of specifically said they liked Matthew more than me, if I recall. I, I was trying to soften the blow. <laughs> but it's been a while. Whatever it takes. <laughs> I think it, you know, I, I have such a hard time remembering these days, but I feel like it's been a while since you and I have done a news episode together. So I'm glad to have you back. And uh, today's yeah. episode is the industry news edition. Uh, now we're two, or well, really into our second week of the new format. So a reminder that next week is what we, because we can't come up with smarter sounding names for these things. But next week is what we call a host choice. So uh, don't know yet exactly what I'm going to talk about next week. I have some really interesting ideas. Uh, but you know, Matthew and I, and and, and you, Jacob, we can we can ch- chat about all that. And folks, come come back around next Tuesday for an exciting another our first ever host choice, you know, news whatever version of the podcast. <laughs> so today's episode, by the way, brought to you by belts. <laughs> like, what what do I call belts. it? We'll just call belts. it what call call, call, by, call it what by belts. Right, just call it what they are. Right. Uh, <laughs> So right now, this week only, we have for sale on concealedcarry.com on our website, uh, all the belts in the store are on sale this week. Some are already marked down because we're trying to move some of the inventory. On We have a few models that are actually discontinued, uh, such as the uh, traveler's belt and the dress belt and the casual belt that uh, is actually left over from when we acquired the company that used to own concealedcarry.com domain. And... Uh, yeah, we're not making those anymore, and so we're, we're trying to move those. So those are already discounted awesomely. And then everything else, including the awesome Viking Tactics Cobra belt, which I'm, I'm wearing right now and I'm super stoked about, uh, all of that's on sale this week only, 15% off. That's a good deal, guys. On some of these products, we don't really have that much margin. So 15% off this week only, concealedcarry.com forward slash belts, and you might want the coupon code. Belt fifteen B L T or B B L T. I love B L T S. Me too. Yeah, delicious. B E L T one five Belt fifteen. That's the coupon code, not B L T. Anyway, uh, also uh, you should go check out the really awesome Tacware TW three fifty flashlights we have available on, on our site. Really cool flashlights. Jacob uh, loves his. Uh, I, I I love them too. It's a, a my my TW350 sits on my nightstand now because it's just a great little light. Very handy, very bright, and the settings adjustment on it's really, really easy and intuitive to understand and, and to use. So really cool lights. Check them out. Tacware TW350. Uh, direct link is concealedcarry.com forward slash TW350. Anything you want to add to that? Oh, I was just going to add that uh, yesterday... We had our shop talk, and for those of you who participate or are or, or are or are not familiar 
Play with Shop Talk. It's a weekly uh, video program we do on Mondays now uh, via Facebook Live. And Riley, you spent basically an hour talking about belts. What makes a good belt? Why you want a gun belt or why you don't? What Leather belts and nylon belts, all sorts of stuff. So if you didn't get a chance to watch that live, you can go to www.concealedcarry.com forward slash shop talk. S-H-O-P. T-A-L-K. And I just thought it was really good content about belts, generally speaking. And we showed lots of belts on that that we do not sell. Uh, so it was, it was meant to be an educational conversation. Yeah. I even touched a little bit on duty belts, competition belts. Um, I mean, like you said, some other belts that uh, that we don't actually sell on our site, but you know, just kind of making the masses aware of some of the options out there. Uh, yeah, that's where you can find the archives for these Monday weekly shop talks is, like Jacob said, concealedcarry.com forward slash shop talk. So if you miss them, just go check out the archives. Uh, you don't even need a Facebook account to, to view those, all right? So even though they're done on Facebook, uh, we've archived those, and you just go to that link, and you can you can view everything right there on that page, all right? So that was crazy. I, I, I didn't even feel like an hour flew by, Jacob. I, I'm thinking like, yeah, maybe 30 minutes. <laughs> You're like, dude, like we should start wrapping it up. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> so anyway, it was fun and it was good content. We got a lot of really great feedback from you uh, listeners and viewers. So thanks so much for checking out into our new weekly segment, Shop Talk. And uh, as announced in the Shop Talk, that's where this uh, coupon code for belts originated. So belts 15 or belt 15, again, the coupon code for all our belts on our site. Well, oh, hey, and one other thing, I got to I gotta mention it. You, you, you want to stick around to the end of the episode because today we're announcing our first ever Tuesday weekly giveaway winner. And this week's prize is the $50 gift certificate for SSP eyewear. Really great quality eyewear for, for shooting purposes or, or other things too. Uh, but they're, they're ideal for taking to the range. You can buy a lot with $50 from SSBIwear.com. So stick around to the end of the episode. Uh, all those of you that joined or signed up for the giveaway by going to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize, your names have been entered and we will automatically and randomly generate the winner's name at the end of today's episode. So stick around. It'll be fun. And we'll announce the, uh, the giveaway for next week too. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. In fact, so if you missed this last one, make sure you, that that link is an kind of an it's an eternal link it's gonna we're gonna revolve and 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 put in the next giveaway sign up on that page every week week after week after week so if you missed it that's okay you have the chance now to get on this next one concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize all right well um with that I, i think it brings us up to our first segment of today's episode which is andrew branca's case of the week and uh, I listened to this one, guys, and this one's actually, I think this might be one of my favorite cases that Andrew has covered thus far for us on the podcast. So I'm really excited for this one. So, and this this is a kind of a follow-up to the EJ Bradford shooting. That was the really, inf- I, I, I say it, and Andrew covers this very, uh, very well as well. That was the unfortunate shooting of a concealed carrier in a mall in Alabama by a law enforcement officer. So let's go ahead and play that now. Here we go.
Hey folks, I'm attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. In this case of the week, we take a look at the awful but lawful shooting death by police of E.J. Bradford in Alabama. On November 22, 2018, an Alabama police officer shot and killed E.J. Bradford Jr., a black male, while responding to a shooting in a shopping mall. It would ultimately turn out that Bradford was himself a good guy seeking to intervene against the bad guy who was the unlawful shooter. Given that Bradford was not a violent bad actor who needed to be shot, it's reasonable to ask whether the officer's conduct in shooting Bradford was lawfully justified. Yesterday, the Alabama Attorney General issued a report of their investigation and conclusions. That full report can be accessed at the text version of this post found at lawofselfdefense.com forward slash blog. For purposes of this case of the week, however, I'll provide an outline of the relevant legal analysis framework and a summary of how the AG report determined the facts and aligned those facts with the law to arrive at their conclusions. First, it's key to remember that the law does not require us to make perfect use of force decisions, although that would, of course, be ideal. Rather, the law requires us to make reasonable use of force decisions. It's permissible to make mistakes in your use of force decision-making so long as those mistakes are reasonable mistakes. And this is true for both law enforcement and non-law enforcement use of force decisions. Now, this condition of reasonableness is one that matters because an unreasonable mistake that results in a death is pretty much the definition of manslaughter. Further, reasonableness must be determined from both a subjective and an objective perspective. First, what matters is not what the facts actually were, but how those facts appeared subjectively to the person who used force. Second, we must consider whether an objectively reasonable and prudent person possessing similar skills, training, and knowledge, and in the same or similar circumstances, would have shared that subjective perception. With that framework in mind, let's consider the facts as determined by the AG's investigation and described in the AG's report. The police officer in question was on duty in the crowded Black Friday sale shopping mall when he heard shots fired nearby. Unknown to the officer at the time, these shots were the result of one Aaron Brown shooting a Brian Wilson. Actions that took place outside of the officer's sight in response to the fired shots, the crowd of bystanders immediately began rapidly fleeing the scene, understandably enough. Upon hearing the shots fired, the officer drew his service pistol, a patently reasonable response to a sudden gunfight in a crowded mall. He almost immediately observed the male, later identified as E.J. Bradford, gun in hand in a firing position, moving away from the officer and closing on the apparent gunshot victim who was leaning on a railing and being assisted by a friend. Everyone except Bradford, including the actual shooter, was moving rapidly away from the location of the gunshot victim. The officer perceived that Bradford, gun in hand, in a shooting position, was an apparently continuing imminent deadly force threat to the gunshot victim who he was nearing, as well as to other nearby bystanders in the mall and to the officer himself and his nearby police colleagues. The officer fired a service weapon at Bradford to neutralize this apparent imminent deadly force threat. Bradford was hit three times with one round striking him in the back of the head and stopping him immediately. 
Interestingly, when questioned, the officer would report that he did not give Bradford any verbal commands before engaging him with fire due to the lack of time to do so. Conflicting with this was testimony from two separate witnesses, both of whom would tell investigators that they distinctly heard the officer order Bradford at least three times to disarm before the officer began shooting. This kind of inconsistency of evidence is not uncommon in high-stress use-of-force events, folks. Investigators from the Attorney General's office would interview not just the officer, but three additional officers and 47 other witnesses, and would find no evidence substantively inconsistent with that already described. Given the uncontested evidence available to the officer at the time and the officer's need to respond to the apparent deadly force threat presented by Bradford in an extremely compressed time frame, the AG concluded that the officer's decision to use deadly force against Bradford under these circumstances was legally reasonable, both subjectively and objectively, even though that decision was literally mistaken. Again, we're not required to make perfect use of force decisions. We're required to make reasonable use of force decisions. Mistakes are allowable if they are reasonable mistakes. The AG report quotes from the 1980 U.S. Supreme Court police use of force case Graham v. Connor, a civil case, but that's a subject for another day, quote, The calculus of reasonableness must embody allowance for the fact that police officers are often forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving about the amount of force that is necessary in a particular situation. This is also often true, of course, for non-LEO use-of-force situations. The AG's report continues, quote, Officer 1 was faced with such a tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving situation when he saw E.J. Bradford running with a gun towards unarmed persons, and his response to that split-second situation was reasonable and based on an appropriate level of care for innocent lives. Close quote. Again, these same circumstances would be relevant in a non-LEO use-of-force analysis as well. The AG's report concludes by stating that because the officer's use of force was reasonable under the circumstances, it was therefore justified and not criminal, and thus the AG was professionally barred from seeking charges against the officer. A closing observation. This kind of lawful but awful shooting happens with some regularity, folks, especially in chaotic defense of other scenarios. This time, it was an officer reasonably, if mistakenly, shooting a civilian good guy. I've seen plenty of cases involving one officer reasonably, if mistakenly, shooting another officer. Sometimes it's one civilian reasonably, if mistakenly, shooting another civilian. Gunfights are dangerous, folks. When you get into a gunfight, there's a meaningful probability that you will die. You might die because you're hit by a bad guy's rounds by a responding officer's rounds, or by the rounds of another law-abiding gun owner who's trying to do the right thing just like you. Alternatively, it might be you who reasonably but mistakenly takes the life of another innocent person, thinking all the while that you're targeting the bad guy. Now, I'm not telling you not to intervene to protect others. That's a call only you can make under the circumstances as you believe them to be. I'm only urging you to know the law, to understand how that law is applied to these kinds of scenarios, to make that decision whether to intervene in an informed way, 
to think about these decisions today before you have to make the decision and ultimately to be sure the stakes are worth the risks. If you enjoyed this case of the week, I urge you to take a look at the Law of Self-Defense blog, the premier source for authoritative self-defense law education and insight. There's always free content available as well as premium content for the Law of Self-Defense community. Just point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash blog. Remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Wow, quite a case there from uh, Andrew Branca. This case of the week again, uh, the story of E.J. Bradford, uh, the shooting there in Alabama. Uh, the identity of the cop cop has never been released, uh, and uh, they, they also made it clear they intend not to release his identity. Um, you know, he was found uh, to have used reasonable amount of force uh, within his authority as an officer. Uh, it's unfortunate. Right, that, that's what I like about this case is it. He, you know, Andrew refers to it as lawful but awful. So, I mean, what do you take from this, Jacob? A couple of really important things I think we can actually learn and apply from this situation. Um, this is one of those like common concerns that we hear from our students. You know, at all levels and degrees of of the firearm you know educational process, people are worried that they're going to get shot by the cops or by another CCWer, and it. It happens, right? Particularly, you know, it happens when cops arrive on scene. Very rare. I don't know if I can name any circumstances where a CCWer has shot another CCWer. But here, I think, are some some important takeaways. One, this is rare because generally the cops are not seconds away; they're minutes away. And this, you know, right? In this, in this case, the response time for the officers was so fast that the armed citizen was just barely beginning to engage. Uh, and I think that's that's a significant concern. But it, you know. That doesn't mean it can't happen again, right? <clears throat> Another thing that I think is really important, and I think about this a lot when I think about the the Walgreens, or not the Walgreens, the Walmart Vegas uh, shooter, right? Where we had a, a concealed carrier trying to stop an active shooter in a Walmart in Las Vegas, and he got shot in the back by another one. And I often think about, you know, what's the, my major takeaway from that? And it's similar to this, my major takeaway from this case, and that is that if you decide, if you decide you're going to engage with uh, you know an active shooter, which is essentially a decision to defend uh, innocent strangers from the threat, um, because you're not you're not just making the decision to defend yourself. Because that, the best decision, if you're if you're going to defend yourself, is to withdraw, right? Is to retreat completely to seek safety. But if you're making the decision to actively engage and, and approach and you know engage that active shooter in defense of innocent bystanders, then the question has to be asked, you know, a how do you do that? In the, in the best way to minimize your risk of this happening because the, you've already made a decision that in my mind um, is kind of, you know, a, a DEFCON 3 kind of position, right? You've, you've decided to risk your life in defense of strangers because otherwise you would withdraw from the environment. If your pure and only desire was your personal survival, you would withdraw. But if you decide to engage, then you've already decided to put yourself at risk for strangers, so that's something to, to think about and consider. And, and when you do that, and I'm finally getting to the point here, 
I think that the, there's a real huge key, and that is to do that in a position of tactical um, safety and cover, right? If I'm going to engage an active shooter in defense of others, I'm going to do that in a way that maximizes my odds for survival. I'm going to first seek a position of cover and safety where I can, you know, visibly see my environment. I can see what's going on. I can, I can, you know, protect myself from oncoming, oncoming gunfire, then I'm going to slowly and deliberately move forward to engage. So that's, that's Jacob. I'm not saying that that's how it has to be done or everyone should do that or that this, this poor you know, dead man did something wrong. I'm saying that those are some things that I take away from this. Yeah. I, I certainly uh, agree with a lot of your takeaways there. Uh, I just wanted to add a couple of things. I, I've, there is some surveillance video that you can watch. In fact, uh, as is always, the show notes of today's episode are available uh, attached to this to this podcast episode. Uh, really, for short short reference, you can go straight to concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 293 once this episode is officially published and uh you can view all all this all the stories and things we're talking about here today are available in the show notes on the news article that's associated with this case of the week there's surveillance video in that article watching the surveillance video uh first of all you'll be really surprised just how quickly it happens uh so I watched it several times and I'm just like, wow, like, you know, I mean, from the time that shots are heard, you see people start to run away. I mean, like the officer is right there very, very, very quickly. But what we see from EJ Bradford is that he has his gun in his hand. Now, granted, the imaging is very pixelated and, and you know, the, the details, not the great greatest, but you can tell is his gun is in his hand and he is running towards the victim that has just been shot and an 18-year-old man that's hovering over top of him, offering some assistance, obviously, or, or doing whatever he can. Uh, so you see Bradford, with his gun in hand, basically moving fairly quickly towards the, the, man, the man that has just been shot. And coming from behind him is the officer. So I want to focus on body language. Body language in this incident is very key. Because what the officer sees and perceives is man... I mean, he knows that shots have just been fired. He knows someone's wounded. He can probably see the wounded man that's just a few feet away on the ground, bleeding. So he 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 sees and comprehends, okay, shots fired, man wounded. Then the very next thing he sees is man heading towards the victim with gun in hand, basically kind of outstretched. He was kind of actually running like this, okay? So you can kind of, I think, understand why this officer makes that judgment call. Oh, this is the guy that just shot the other guy, and he's going towards him now to finish him off. Now, the shooter, by the way, actually was on the other side, kind of off camera. Well, they actually showed two camera angles. One is really fascinating to me as well because you actually see a, a mother with a baby in a stroller uh, kind of right in front of the camera. And as soon as the shots are, are fired, uh, she just, I mean, very quickly, like, wheels that wheelchair, or wheelchair, uh, 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 stroller, <laughs> stroller around and takes off the other way. Good, good on her. Interestingly enough, the shooter actually runs towards her and goes into the JC Penny, which is like that. It's that direction. So, um, so we have to be also aware and thinking of 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 where we're going, and and also if if we can identifying who the actual threat is and making sure we're not going the same direction as they are. But the point is, is you can see why the officers, uh, why the officer perceived what he did. Uh, so the body language back to that, if we, if we are running around in a public place with a gun in hand and it's outstretched, 
that looks like I'm an active killer seeking my next target. If we keep it in maybe a high compressed ready position sewell or even just you know kind of tucked in close to the body where it's not actively pointing in other you know towards people or in any particular direction and also if we can you know have a you know if there's other people around you want to be doing things that makes it appear as though you are not the bad guy the bad guy's going to have gun in hand looking for his his next target you don't want to do that and i think i kind of i mean that that's not a guarantee that this would have ended up differently had Bradford held his gun in some special different position, but it certainly couldn't hurt. It, it could help the case a little bit as far as what that officer sees and perceives and then goes, okay, maybe this is not the threat. Maybe it'll give him just a, just another split second more to have a, a, you know, a little bit of a doubt in his mind. Well, maybe I'm not sure this is the bad guy, right? And that might give him a little bit more time to even offer more commands because apparently the witnesses said he said three times, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. Um, so anyway, that's just a couple observations I had, especially after reviewing the surveillance video. Yeah. Great, great comments. And, uh, I think that addresses some of the comment, the questions that we see here in the live feed from viewers, but I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to episode 92. I just looked it up. Episode 92 of our podcast is called myth or fact, CCW mistakes, another CCW for bad guy. And while that is not specifically about law enforcement mistaking a CCW for a bad guy, it addresses all the same kind of tactics and questions. We talk at length about uh, things like body language and, and other things and tools you can have and, and exercise to be able to ensure, uh, you know, that doesn't happen to you. Now, and, and there's no perfect world. There's, you know, sometimes bad things happen, but I do think you can maximize your odds for success. Yeah, a couple comments here on Facebook. Uh, Tristram says, it's one thing if the shooter takes off and is no longer a threat. Totally different if the threat is still ongoing. Now, one thing that's just for context sake, uh, Bradford, he had actually initially run away from where the shooting took place. He, as he did so, it's almost like he created some space to give him some time to draw his gun. It also said in the report that he racked, that he had to chamber around in the chamber, so he was not carrying uh, the gun with round and chamber. So he actually initially went away from the the initial scene of the of the shooting uh, to draw his gun, chamber around, then turned around and was starting to run towards where the threat had been. And remember, the the threat was going the other direction, so it. It, it seems that he was going after the bad guy. All right, so that's kind of what was going on there. Um, and then also, Sean says, use your weapon as a shield, not a sword. Yeah, and, and that's really the idea. Like, as good guy CCWers, we are always on the defensive. We have to operate from a position of defense and not offense. And that, again, I think that kind of plays into the, into the body language a little bit. All right, so good thoughts there. Well, uh, really, like I said, really good case of the week from uh, Attorney Andrew Branca. We appreciate uh, his partnership with us and allowing us to use these in our in our podcast each week. Let's now jump into some news stories. First up, this one's a little bit more political than we probably tend to get on on things here on the show, Jacob. Um, but partly because it involves uh, some of our friends over at Nine Line Apparel. Uh, and that is the company that's involved here. Nine Line Apparel, uh, maker of, of course, appar- you know, really cool apparel. I mean, n- awesome T-shirts, you know, hoodies, hats, you name it. Uh, they submitted a commercial to be aired during the Super Bowl uh, just a few weeks ago, and it was turned down. Now, if you view the commercial, 
knowing what you might think about CBS or just mainstream media in general and the NFL and everything that's happened there in the last couple of years, couple of seasons, uh, it's kind of really no surprise this was uh, rejected. Frankly, I'd, and I'd love to have the have the chat with the guys over there at Nightline about this. I, I I really feel like they they submitted the commercial pretty confident it was not going to make airtime. Um, that but really this is a a brilliant strategy to uh, probably get a little bit of still exposure for them for really at this point no cost <laughs> other than the production of the of the commercial. Um, I'm not going to fault them for that at all. Like, because honestly, the commercial is really cool. Right, it's highlighting first responders, uh, military service members, uh, and, and talking about you know the the commitment and the sacrifice that they make to do what they do, and and it kind of keeps repeating this phrase of you know, uh, are, you know, are you crazy or are you crazy enough? Um, and, and really, I mean these these wonderful men and women that stand on the front lines of, of fire rescue, of police, of military, uh, EMTs run into the face of danger every day. And you got to be kind of a little bit crazy to do that. And that's kind of the point of the commercial, but it's, it's a beautiful commercial. Uh, but it was turned down by CBS and, and I think that's too bad because, you know, I think if you're, if you're going to do things that show one side of, you know, uh, one type of, of, of free speech that you ought to be willing to show the other side of free speech as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I have a ton to add other than, you know, CBS obviously makes it very clear. They claim that they didn't think that Nine Line could pay for it, but Nine Line, you know, went to some effort to show that they very much so could pay for it. And you know, they submitted a bunch of credit references and you know information from banks and et cetera to show that they were good for the money. But that's CBS's claim, right? Oh, they couldn't pay for it. Sure. Um, now I've seen a lot of chatter out there from people who say, well. You know, but CBS and, and other networks, they avoid any political advertising from either side, you know, in these situations. It's, it's you know, they're, they're nonpartisan in these environments, right? They, it's not that they, they, they would have turned down something that was, you know, anti, you know, military just as much as they turned down this one. And, and to that, I call a little bit of BS. I mean, there was an ad in there. Uh, that in my my opinion took some took some stabs <laughs> at uh, at our president. Agreed. Um, that did air. So so I don't I don't buy that either. You now you know, one reason or another, whatever it might be, it doesn't it does you know it's not a, as big of a deal. And to your point, I think you know if, I don't know what Nine Line was thinking, but it very well could, just could have been a great publicity ruse. Uh, but at the end of the day, I love Nine Line Apparel. I think they're a good company. I think they're good people. I think that they have a good product and I love America. And so it does, it does just kind of anger me a little bit. Now, this is an interesting thought too, because, you know, I would love to be able to say that as the president of concealedcarry.com, I never give any eyeballs, attention or foot traffic to any business or operation out there that doesn't support the second amendment, but that's getting more challenging all the time. <laughs> you know, you know, are, are we just all now going to not watch CBS anymore? You know, and, and and so anyway, I just this is one of those challenging things where, to the best of my ability, I try not to be a patron of or you know, to provide revenue for companies that don't support the Second Amendment. This is one of those where it's a little bit great whether or not the CBS doesn't support the Second Amendment. I mean, their track record is not great, and this doesn't help it. But uh, yeah, you know, take take a, take out of it what you will, I guess, to each each their own to interpret this. Yeah. All righty. Uh, give Nine Line some love and support. Uh, like like Jacob said, they're wonderful people. They're a great company, and they make awesome stuff. So uh, you can uh, is their website just NineLine.com or is it NineLineApparel.com? 
Well, I put a link here in our feed. Let me just double check that. I think it's nine-man apparel, but I'm double checking. So anyway, Jacob will pull that up for us while I uh, introduce the next story here from guns.com. Ninelineapparel.com. Ninelineapparel.com. Nine is spelled out nine. N-I-N-E, ninelineapparel.com. Give them some love. Guns.com reports the SIG, uh, the new SIG M18 completes Army acceptance test with zero stoppages. So when the U.S. Army put out their their uh, request for proposals for this bid on this new military contract gun, uh, of course, the M17 being the full-size P320 variant, designed and built specifically for this contract for the U.S. Army. Uh, they also, part of that contract was also to produce a more compact version of the same gun, and that was going to be referred to and is referred to as the M18. So you have the M17, the, the original, uh, the full-size variant, and then the M18 is a little bit more compact. So uh, SIG, of course, winning uh, both those contracts, and they have just gotten through the complete uh, testing, and the Army has accepted the M18, which means it will be very soon uh, issued and, and put out there to the masses uh, amongst the ranks. And so what was pretty interesting is that uh, it says here that the, that, the, that the testing the Army does allows for 12 stoppages in the course of 5,000 fi- rounds fired, three M18... M18s used went to 12,000 rounds each with zero stoppages. So basically they have three guns firing a total of 36,000 rounds because it said 12,000 each and zero stoppages. So kind of just, you know, driving home the point that uh, it's not just about the money side of things, but also the reliability side of things that it looks like the, this new gun is a winner, at least in the eyes of the army, uh, our, our servicemen and women are going to be carrying this thing. So, and are carrying the, the, the M17, some of them already. So it looks like it's uh, meeting the standard and performing very well. Yeah. I appreciate that. This gives us a little bit of a view too. And, uh, what those standards look like. You know, what does it mean to in the in the in the minds of the military, the army specifically, to have a gun that's reliable? Uh, that's that's pretty extensive testing. Not to mention expensive testing. Uh, I mean, just the cost of ammo is pretty 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 considerable. I, I also appreciate that uh, this is, I think, good for Sig Sauer. You know, we, I've seen we've seen ads recently from competitors that I think take a stab <laughs> at Sig Sauer as it relates to reliability. Uh, so twelve thousand rounds per gun over three guns with zero stoppages is impressive. Yeah, it's very much so. Um, but you know, my own experience with the 320 platform itself, uh, th- that seems very reasonable to me. So, cause sure. I've had very, very reliable success with the 320 series of pistols, uh, including my, it do- no, it doesn't say Riley, you might know this because I don't think it says in the article, but I assume that they have to be lubricating these guns every so many rounds. That they're not just going to put twelve thousand rounds through a gun. Right. I I don't know exactly what that standard is, but I know a standard practice in a lot of testing uh, testing that's done, including amongst law enforcement contracts, would be to relubricate every five hundred rounds. Um, so, and when I so when I did my review of the P three sixty five, you know that I ended up putting several thousand rounds through over the course of the, of the year. 
I, I about every I was not perfect all the time, but probably about every 500 rounds I, I would do the same. I didn't ever really clean the gun fully. I just would kind of take it apart. And uh, I mean, if there was like some piece of lint or something in there, I'd you know remove that. But but I didn't do a clean, uh, you know, like a, a a cleaning as you would think of doing uh, with a handgun when it gets dirty. I just would kind of take it apart, look it over, put some lube on the rails and and other you know on the barrel and stuff, and put it back together, and, and away we'd go. And uh, you know, it was also a very reliable gun for me. Uh, it hasn't been the case for everybody, but for me, with two different guns over you know five basically 5,000 rounds was very reliable. 320, I've got my P320X5 uh, that I have shot, I don't know, a lot of rounds through now at this point in competition. And those competitions, boy, I, I don't baby that gun. It gets dirty. It gets shot a lot. Uh, it gets thrown around. I say thrown around. Well, you know, when we're shooting three gun, we'll shoot a pistol. And sometimes, you know, instead of putting it back in the holster, actually a lot of times instead of putting it back in the holster, they'll have us dump the gun in a dump barrel, uh, usually like a little basket, you know, that, that encapsulates and, you know, protects the gun, you know, from bouncing around and accidentally pointing somewhere we don't want it point point and, sh- and shooting somebody. I've never seen that happen, but it could happen, I suppose. But, you know, you throw that gun in that dump barrel. So it gets beat up and stuff, and I have not had a single malfunction in my P320X5. My standard P320, mm-hmm. I had a malfunction, like one, when I was intentionally putting dirt in it, <laughs> trying to see what the limits were. So anyway, very reliable guns in my experience. So are Glocks, right? But uh, uh, Glock, unfortunately, didn't win the contract. So if you have uh, two guns that perform equally as well or close to, but one is substantially cheaper... You might understand why the Army went with, with Sig Sauer on this one. All right, let's take a look now. Our next story, this is on a site I've never been to before, splinternews.com. I have no idea how reputable it is, but this doesn't really matter because this is like an opinion piece written by one Jack Crosby, and it's titled, You Don't Need a Handgun. I read through this. Yeah. I was kind of like, oh boy, but I'd like to hear Jacob's thoughts first. Yeah, this, this article is ridiculous. This is horrible. So this is shoddy, shoddy, shoddy writing and based on some really shoddy conclusions. So let me try and sum this up. And rather, you just jump right in if you think I say anything that's wrong, not accurate, or, or, or poor here. But basically what you have is a, a, a study that's been performed that shows that there is a correlation with the increase of childhood deaths from firearms over a period of time in which there is also an increase in the number of families that have young kids that have handguns in the home. Okay. So, you know, that seems to correlate that the more handguns that are in American homes, particularly homes that have children, that correlates with an increase in childhood deaths from from firearms, generally speaking. And so the author of this then is starting, is, is making some huge. Uh, conclusions based on that, right? Hey, this correlates. Therefore, you know, let's let's come to some conclusions. And the big one, obviously, the main uh, point of the topic here is that you just don't need a handgun. Your handgun doesn't actually have any value whatsoever. Uh, the only thing it does is uh, is kill your kids. This is really fun. For example, here's a quote from the article: If you own a handgun, there is a chance it will kill your child. The child will make a mistake, or you will make a mistake, and your child will be dead. A handgun is a, is small. The geometry of where the barrel is pointing when it goes off is particularly deadly compared to a more cumbersome firearm. Children do not understand this. Adults, much of the time, do not understand this. 
Oh my goodness. I got one more. I got a quote. I got to read from this just so you guys enjoy this. Do you need a handgun for self-defense? No, you do not. If you are so desperately afraid and insecure that you must keep a firearm in your home, get a shotgun, which is easier to secure, easier to use, and far less likely to penetrate the walls of your house. It's also less likely to result in your child's accidental death. A large, heavy shotgun is much more difficult for a toddler to mess with than a small, light handgun. So there's there's some things in here that are just outright wrong. There's some conclusions that are drawn based on really shoddy, uh, you know, evidence and 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 data. And then there's just a bunch of I'll call it like hyperbole, you know, arbitrary drama writing here that is 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 ridiculous and arguably doesn't even correlate with the research that's being quoted. Yeah. I'm with you there, bro. You know, so there, there is, okay, there, there is something to be said about how, <clears throat> how it is a lot easier to, particularly on upon oneself, point a gun, you know, at yourself and commit suicide accidentally. Uh, a handgun is a lot easier to do that sort of thing with. A shotgun would be a lot more difficult for a little child to get a hold of and do something with that would harm themselves, but certainly could harm other people around them. So he kind of seems to indicate that, that, you know, having a longer gun, a shotgun, for instance, would be safer all around, you know, that, that it'd be less likely that anyone else would get hurt. Uh, no, there's a valid point to maybe the a handgun being a more dangerous thing to oneself, but, uh, but everything else he said there was kind of a bunch of baloney. Um, well, I mean, we, we have our own research that shows that in, that, in, a, in the case of a negligent discharge where someone is injured or killed from that negligent discharge, a person other than the person holding the gun is more likely to be injured than the person who is holding the gun. And so a long gun then is no safer in that right. kind of context than a short gun. Yeah, and that's, that's what I was trying to get at, right? So, and, and yes, we do have that. Of course, you can go see that study we did, uh, Jacob will share the link or something, but, uh, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, here, here's what kind of really irked me. Like there's a lot of things as I'm reading this, I'm like, uh, 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 but, uh, there's this statement here. He says, do you need a handgun for self-defense? No, you do not. If you are so desperately afraid and insecure that you must keep a firearm in your home, get a shotgun like that, that desperately afraid and insecure part. Because you know what? This is what someone says when they believe they are immune to crime. When in their mind, they have convinced themselves that that sort of terrible, horrible thing always happens to other people and not themselves. I live in a safe place, in a safe neighborhood, behind secured and locked doors and gates. And it's it's inconceivable that anything could happen to me that would put my safety in jeopardy. That's what that, that's that's the mindset of this Jack Crosby. But obviously as we know and as you know our listeners the podcast for a long time we share justified save stories like we shared last week on on the podcast that I mean it's very much apparent that I mean yes your odds of personally being involved in a situation like that where you need a gun to defend yourself is rare it's true but these sorts of things happen all the time, happen every day across this, this country. So this, that's, that's the mindset. That's, these are the words that someone says that doesn't think that that horrible thing will happen to them. Contrast that with if something did happen to him. I wonder if he'd be singing a different tune. And I'm reminded of, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he's a journalist, I believe, that uh, was anti-gun for his entire life 
until a few years ago when he was robbed at gunpoint. And he went, I mean, it's just a big time paradigm shift for him in his world. It just flipped his whole world upside down. He went, oh my gosh, like I, I never felt so vulnerable. I never felt so incapable of doing anything. I was completely, my life was at, at the mercy of this gentleman that was, gentleman, uh, this guy pointing a gun at me, robbing me on the street. And it changed, it caused him, he's, he, I read an article of his once as he explained all of this, and he, he didn't really seem to say that he is like into guns any more than he was before, you know, or that he likes them any more than he did before, just that he understood that it's not about like or love the gun or want the gun. It's about a need that that, that gun, that tool serves a purpose, uh, which is to equalize the playing field, you know, between bad guys and good guys, and that they can be used in a positive way where lives are saved because people are able to have a gun. Whenever I hear these statistics, Jacob, of, of someone saying, well, you know, this many accidental shootings happened, this many children were, were hurt or killed by guns this last year or whatever it is, like obviously those every single one of those, I recognize the fact every single one of those lives lost, especially those children's lives lost, are a tragedy. And it's regrettable, and I wish we could go back in time and change what you know everything that happened that made any one of those possible uh, or or happen the way they did. But I always have to put it in, in perspective because as many stories as we share on the podcast, Jacob, of people each week that use guns in self defense and potentially save lives every week, that number of unfortunate childhood deaths from guns, I can pretty much guarantee you is far less than the number of lives saved because of guns. Yeah. Well, here's what's challenging. And I feel this way kind of about the case of the week that Andrew shared as well. People want it both ways. They want it both ways. You know, I mean, you read this article and in one paragraph, he's saying, you don't need a handgun, you know, shotgun's great. And then in the next paragraph, he talks about active shooter events and how, you know, you, you shouldn't be involved. Well, it's, do you want me to walk around with a shotgun all the time then in case, you know, because I have just as much right to defend myself outside the home as I do in the home. No, you don't want me walking around with a shotgun. That would scare you to death. You'd rather I walked around with a handgun. So, you know, and, and it's people love, they, they want it both ways. And the same thing's true with, with the case of the week situation. Think about that one. Like people want cops to show up and immediately engage the active shooter and take them down. But people don't want cops to shoot good guys who they might mistake as bad guys. Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't tell cops to be there in seconds and engage the active shooter immediately and then say, oh, but first somehow verify that, that person's a good guy. You know, there, there's too many situations where we want it both ways. We just want like nothing bad to ever happen. And it just doesn't work that way. You can't have it both ways. You have to, you can't sit there and say, on one hand, you don't need a gun for self-defense, but on the other hand, talk about how we're glad cops have guns. You know, it, that, yeah. it, it, it's a conflict. Like the, the two don't jive together. So, you know, you, you can't have it both ways. That's right. N never mind, you know, to, another thing this gentleman is ignoring is the fact that why are handguns so popular for self-defense, even for home defense? And it's simply because they are one of the best tools for the job for most people. Yes, obviously a shotgun or some sort of rifle, an AR. Of course, I'll bet you this guy doesn't really care for AR-15s. Uh, are arguably more effective, right? But they're not always the best tool, 
right? Because a, a long rifle or a shotgun are a lot less uh, wieldy, right? They're they're more difficult to use in some contexts. And like as you said, you certainly can't carry them around with you everywhere you go. So that's why people have handguns. I, he, the, the statistics show, and I believe this based on my interactions with people in the industry, that gun ownership has the, the demographics and the statistics of, of gun ownership have changed in a big way because people nowadays, I believe, own guns far more often for self-defense reasons than they do for sport or entertainment, right? So, you know, we saw, and he states those art, those statistics in this article about how, well, way back in the day, like, yeah, more households had guns, but fewer of those guns were handguns, and now that's sort of switched. Well, it's because people are thinking about the self-defense aspect. They're, they're viewing them as a tool, and that tool of a handgun is something that is handy, it's easy, relatively easy to use. Uh, I mean, tactically is is just a, a better tool in more and more contexts for most people. So, why would you want to take away? Like, if you, sir, Mister Jack Crosby, truly believe, you know, it, he seems to be okay with the idea of self defense, but of course, he proposes have a shotgun instead. But if you really truly believe that, why would you want to take away from people? what for most of them is a better tool. So like if we're, if we're really concerned about people's lives, we want them to have the best tool for the job. Okay. So we don't hand people a rock to hammer in a nail. We give them a hammer and that's, you know, not, not that a shotgun is a rock in in that comparison. Right. But uh, you get what I'm trying to say. Well, and I love, you know, there's just so much ignorance here about what shotgun shotguns do and don't do, you know, and there's a good comment here from a viewer who says people freak out if we carry our shotguns or ARs for self-defense. And that's another thing what I mean when I say, you know, people want it both ways. On one hand, it's like, you don't need a handgun. Well, then they turn around and say, you don't need a rifle. You know, it's like, what yep. you're saying is we don't need a gun. You're, and you, of course, yeah. you're also saying at the same time, we should be able to have a gun to defend ourselves. And that, but in case we're accused of being um, insensitive, let me be clear about this. It is not cool when children die from firearms in this country. And the fact that that is going up is super not cool and not okay. And I know a lot of that, in fact, like two thirds last time I checked is suicide, um, but that still isn't okay. You know, right. Whether it's suicide or not, uh, children in this country should not be dying at the hands of firearms. And so I'm certainly sympathetic to anyone who sees that as a problem and wants to do something about it and have, has an opinion about it. And I find it wholly unacceptable for any gun owner to store or stage firearms in a way that potentially leaves them accessible to unauthorized people or to fail, I should say, and, and to properly educate children on firearms. So. Yeah. You know that that is a problem, and we got to please ourselves, and we got to do a better job, and stop justifying, you know, bad decisions. Yep. Good thoughts, buddy. Let's jump now to the story from the New York Times. A uh, rather lengthy story, but you should go read it. Okay. Now, the, the title of the story is "Florida School Hires Two Combat Veterans to Take Down Active Shooters." You know, the first thing I saw, Jacob, is this first image, and uh, this guard is holding a Keltec RDB uh, slung over his shoulder. So I immediately thought, with empty chamber. Yeah, well, I immediately thought Florida RDB Keltec. You know, Chad, he's he's down in that area too. So like, good good on you, Keltec, for uh, getting your RDB in the hands of these security guards. 
basically, uh, the, the, the whole point of the story is Manatee School for the Arts in Palmetto, Florida has, you know, so there's, they, last year, Florida passed this law that requires schools to have at least one safe school officer, it's called. And, uh, and it, now, that's being implemented across, you know, the state in various forms. This school is the one that's probably gone the, the most far with that, in that instead of hiring just one, they've hired two security guard or security officers. And they're not just arming those guys with a handgun, they're arming them with rifles slung over their shoulders. They, they are actually patrolling the school grounds with a carbine uh, on them, which is, that is really quite, uh, I, I even, I, I look at it and think, wow, that's that's pretty progressive as far as, you know, if you just introduce that into just any old school, uh, that that would get a lot of pushback <laughs> from, well, from make, people. It makes sense to me, Riley, because they don't need a handgun. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Based on the last article, yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, um, it, it is true they are carrying these without uh, a chambered round uh, in the gun, and that that's actually not that untypical when you're carrying a carbine, right? If you're just carrying uh, a rifle for uh, patrol sake, like that's a standard practice. You don't keep a round chambered all the time. Um, it doesn't take much on a rifle like that to go ahead and shape around. Now, I know we could get in the age-old debate of, well, we always push on the handgun side of things. Well, you we should carry that that round chambered. The difference, I think, is a little bit in that, in the case of a handgun, it's holstered in a holster. So, like, it's, it's, it's a little bit more protected than when you're carrying a rifle out in the open, where the only thing between you and that shot being fired is a, is a safety, which can be deactivated, believe it or not. Uh, I've, I've seen it happen, where... You know, you're carrying a slung rifle, and because it's swinging or bouncing around on your chest, uh, it just happens to catch the safety and swipe that off. Okay, and then of course, then it's just a a, a fairly light trigger pull to uh, get around to go off. We have to be a little bit concerned too about security and retention of firearms when we're carrying them in a school, especially. That's something else this article really hits on. We'll uh, I'll let Jacob actually speak to that a little bit, but uh, you know, so. Retention is, a, is an issue. In the case of a holster, a security guard, a police officer, they're, if they're carrying openly, especially in a school environment, it, it's going going to be in a retention holster. That's going to you know, provide that little bit of, of security for that gun so that somebody can't just quickly access it and pull the trigger. In the case of a rifle, yeah, I, I, I agree with the practice, actually, of not having a round chambered uh, because it's going to re- require a student to overpower that guard, get a hold of that rifle, then chamber it, put the safety off, you know, before they can fire the round. So that, that requires a little bit more work, if that makes sense. So anyway, um, that, that's that's what this article is talking about, is how this school, like, I'm sure the New York Times are like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> this school is authorizing these guys to walk around with rifles. I think it's remarkable, because to me, this tells me more than anything, this school takes takes the the, the charge serious to protect its students. It even talks about how they're reinforcing and raising the fence around the school. It sounds like it's actually like the school is fenced in and they're installing a guard shack at the entrance into the school. Wow. Guess what? I don't think we're going to be reading about a school shooting taking place at this school anytime soon. So that tells me these guys take it seriously. And, you know, and they've spent like $200,000 implementing all of this. And that's remarkable because you know what? If you really truly value the safety and security of your kids, my kids that are going to your school, yeah, by golly, put your money where your mouth is and do what do what's necessary to protect my kids. So that's what this school has done. I think it's remarkable. So Jacob, uh, you know, go a little bit deeper for us here. 
Yeah, I'll I'll reference some of the you know incidents or links that New York Times references where you know it's basically trying to make a case for or you know this this illustrates how dangerous this can be you know because here are examples of situations where guns in schools have led to bad things happening and um, and most of these you know examples that they reference we're talking about situations with law enforcement officers not you know concealed carriers or armed teachers or anything like that but people who are there and trained you know for nothing more than to keep people safe and uh, it talks about an incident in, uh, geez, I don't know where, Michigan, you know, where a school resource officer was in a room by himself and he negligently discharged his gun uh, and it hit somebody. And we've had a couple of situations like that at schools. Um, I remember one in Utah with similar kind of things in a staff room. Uh, but it also talks about a couple of incidents, one in Kansas and one in Michigan, where students basically tried to wrestle a gun away from an officer. And at least in one of those situations, it, you know, the, the gun dis- did discharge while in the retention holster and no one was injured but it kind of talks about you know that that's with the handgun in a holster man are we going to what's going to happen with the rifle you know what's that going to look like and i i think it comes down to people such just just to that kind of plain ignorance i mean i think people would be really shocked to find out how often uh, law enforcement officers in this country are getting fights over their own gun how much they have to fight to retain their own gun uh, from from bgs so yep. it just is a thing, and that's why law enforcement officers, and, and in this case, as you described it, these uh, school resource officers or whatever, take very specific precautions relative to the type of holsters they use, the type of belts they put them on, and the way they carry and manage that firearm to ensure that, that degree of retention and safety. And when sometimes those things go wrong, yeah, that, that can happen. But, I mean, isn't it, isn't it interesting that the ex- only examples New York Times can point at are the ones where no one was injured? You know, because the proper precautions were in place, uh, that even when the worst case scenario happened, the only situations that the New York Times can point at, no one was injured. Yeah. You know, actually, it's, and that's a great point. In one of those instances, it was a officer who was alone in a room that for whatever reason was doing something with his gun and somehow discharged it and it went through a wall. And it said that a teacher was struck. But if you read the article... It's really like (laughs) they were grazed by the bullet. It actually specifically says in the article, it didn't even break the skin. So they felt the bullet like, like it brushed across their cheek, you know? So like, okay, not to make light of it as a, that, that thing should never have happened. Obviously there was an investigation done. I, I, I don't have more specifics as to why this officer was doing something that caused that gun to be out of the holster and able to be fired, uh, inside that school. Jacob, I did look into this other incident in Minnesota where uh, the, it, it talked about a third grade student, a nine, nine-year-old, uh, I think it said, in, reached, somehow reached into the trigger guard of a holstered gun on the police officer's belt and managed to pull the trigger and fire a shot. So guess what? I fired off an email to the chief of police at Maplewood Police Department, Maplewood, Minnesota. I was impressed. I just sent that like an hour ago and said, sir, I'm inquiring about this incident that occurred on February 5th, 2018. Could you tell me about the make and model of holster and firearm that was used uh, with that holster? And I'm, I'm curious about, you know, what about that may have enabled that uh, student to reach their finger inside and, and fire around while the gun was in the holster? They, they replied within like five minutes. I was blown away. That is like, that's customer service for government, bro. <laughs> um, they said, yeah, that's pretty good. 
they sent me a whole document. And this will be in the show notes, by the way. It's a PDF document uh, that they had already produced and they have put out to a number of law enforcement agencies to make them aware of this potential issue. And then they, the officer was using a Safari Land Model 6360 holster. It's designed for weapon-mounted lights on a Glock 22 or Glock 17. In this case, it was a Glock 22 that was being used. Uh, the Due to the wide wider opening for the weapon-mounted light to go into the holster, there's actually enough of an opening, especially in the case of a smaller finger, but they actually have an image here showing an adult finger able to do the same thing. But you can see how it'd be even easier for a child uh, is able to actually reach kind of into the holster and get a hold of the trigger and fire that shot. So it sounds like they have upgraded now to the Safari Land 7000 holster, which largely eliminates the issues according to them. And they are also looking at using different lights, such as like the new Streamlight TLR7 instead of the TLR1. Uh, so a more compact light doesn't require as much of an opening on the holster. So I, I, th I just thought that was really interesting. I thought I'd provide that context uh, as to, because I when I read that, I'm like, come on, like how does that student reach into that holster and pull the trigger? Well, it's, I, I was thinking they must have surely deactivated his retention and managed to get the, hold, the guns partway out of the holster to be able to do that. And then I'm thinking, but it's a nine-year-old kid. So like, how do they manage to deactivate retention and do all this without that officer being able to do something about it? But clearly, so he was actually sitting down and the student was nearby, kind of slightly behind him, and they were able to reach up and without him knowing, just snuck their finger in there and were able to fire off that shot. So uh, it, it's just, the lesson learned, sorry, Jacob, is just that when we're carrying a gun, and this is a training component, especially for those that would be in the schools protecting our students, you've got to be absolutely aware of your surroundings and who's around you and what's going on, and especially keeping an eye on things there with your sidearm. Sorry, there you go. Yeah, I was just going to add that for many of us who are not in law enforcement, don't have a law enforcement background, some of these things are a little bit out of context because we don't understand, you know, this idea of like level three retention holsters. But when you carry a gun, OWB, visible to the public, uh, you know, wearing a uniform or in that kind of a context, you know, retention becomes significantly more important. And so, you know, duty holsters generally are level three holsters for that reason, because you know we're, we're trying to minimize in a maximum way possible that that could happen. And so, you know, I, I find it interesting. And, and you mentioned that these guys they responded very quickly. They responded quickly because they had already done a whole bunch of research and investigation into this, put together a report, and sent it out nationally because a level three retention holster is designed specifically to prevent this kind of thing from happening. And yep. so, anyway, just a little context for those of us who don't come from that background. Yep. It, it's just a really good reminder that even, like, we can't sh turn off our brains just because we put faith in the equipment, right? Like, so, and that's, I, to me, that's kind of how I see this, is that, and it's very easy to do as a law enforcement officer. You carry that gear, you carry that gun every day. And you probably get, to, I mean, one, it becomes kind of, it, that's the normal, you know, rigmarole of every day. Like that's just what you do and you get used to it and you get comfortable with the equipment and with the gear. And so maybe you let your guard down a little bit and you think that, Hey, as long as that, as long as I don't feel anybody feeling with my gun, like then they can't possibly be taking it out of the holster. Cause they got to do like three things to get it out of the holster. So I'm good. Right. But the reality is like, we still have to keep the brain switched on, keep an eye on things around us and not allow anybody to get really close to us, especially on our weapon side, uh, when we're carrying a gun, this is true for any of us. All right. Okay. So let's, uh, 
let's go now to actually I think that that is all of our stories. Wow. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I had one more. Uh, yeah, so lots of uh, interesting things we covered today and lessons learned. Uh, kind of what's what's the wrap up for you, Jacob? Yeah, I think the wrap up is people want it both ways. They can't have it both ways. Life isn't perfect. So we have to do our best to minimize risk, and we have to make decisions about what we're willing to risk our life for. Specifically, that scenario of you know random strangers in an active shooter event. Am I am I going to be a person who's going to protect me and my own, or my person is going to step in and try and help out people I don't know? And if so, how am I going to go about that? And thinking through some of those things. And uh, yeah, I think education always trumps ignorance. So when you read articles like this, always. You know, do what it takes to be informed and, and educated on these kinds of things. Yeah, good stuff. Well, that's a, that's a wrap for our stories today. And uh, just a re- quick reminder that today's episode is made possible and brought to you by Belts as sold on ConcealedCarry.com. You go check them out, ConcealedCarry.com forward slash Belts. It'll be a link that'll show you basically all the belts available in our online store. And this week only, up through basically Sunday, uh, you can use the coupon code BELT15, BL. B-E, I keep trying to say B-L-T, B-E-L-T-1-5, and that'll knock off 15% additional uh, savings from any belts available in our store. Uh, also, the Tacwear TW350 flashlight, really cool light, really excellent price, too, on that as well. So check that out, concealedcarry.com forward slash TW350. Make sure you're signing up for our weekly giveaways. Uh, This next week, I'll tell you in just a moment what we're going to be giving away next Tuesday. But in just a few minutes, we're going to announce this week's winner of a $50 gift certificate to SSP Eyewear. Really, really excited about that. Uh, In fact, uh, those of you viewing, this, this is it right here. Okay, so you'll get a coupon code. We'll send that to you, and all you got to do is go to SSBIWare.com, plug in that coupon code, and that's going to immediately give you a $50 credit on any off of anything that you uh, buy in their store. Uh, so next week, we are going to be giving away a traveler's guide to the firearm laws of the 50 states. Uh, this is the new 2019 edition. Just got these back in our, you know, this is updated every year. This uh, guide, it's a great little booklet. I actually meant to grab one from the warehouse yesterday and so I could have it here and show you, hey, here's here it is, 2019 edition. Uh, excellent summary of the laws as you per, perhaps, per, or especially as you might travel between state to state to state to state. Okay, so you can very quickly flip open that book, go to Wyoming, for instance, and see in there that, uh, you know, you, you, you can carry your gun in certain places, but you can't others. Like, is it is it still illegal, I think, Jacob, to carry a gun into a, uh, a liquor-serving establishment that drives like 50% or more, of, or maybe that's Texas. I know that Wyoming yeah, is... Not Wyoming. Yeah. Okay. I feel like they used to have a law similar to that, but it, you know things change all the time, and that's the important part, right? That the the guide updated yearly is going to make sure you have the latest and greatest information. So you're going to want one of these 2019 editions of the Traveler's Guide to the Firearm Laws of the 50 States. All right, available for sale in our store. Okay, so if you, you can go pick one up, uh, but you do have a chance to win one this week. Go get signed up, concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize. If you can hear this, you're eligible to win. So make sure that you you go and, and get entered. And don't forget, you can get extra entries by taking the little share link. Once you've entered, it gives you a little share link. And you go put it on Twitter or Facebook or send it, you know, text it or email it to a friend. And if they enter, you get an extra entry. You can get up to 10 entries. Yep. Yeah, we, we noticed uh, looking at this week's entries that there was only a few of you that took advantage of the 
opportunity to get extra entries. So there's like five or six of you that have more more chances to win today's great prize. So uh, yeah, make sure you take advantage of that opportunity to get extra entries in, into the competition or into the contest or whatever. Giveaway. So Cami uh, asked, how much is the book? What's the price of that book on our site, Jacob? It's 19 bucks plus shipping. I think you'd be out the door right around $23 or something like that. There you go. Very reasonable. Okay. Seriously, for, for the kind of resource this book is, it's it's a it's a great resource. A lot of value there. Uh, and Kim is asking, do we enter every week? Yes, you got to go enter. So that contest resets every uh, every week. Okay. So from basically Tuesday to Tuesday, uh, you need to make sure sometime during the week you go to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize to re-sign up each week, okay, and take advantage of the extra uh, entries opportunities, which is really what that is, is sharing with your friends and your family via social media. If you share it, you'll get extra entries, all right? So make sure you're entering into the podcast prize giveaway uh, sign up, and make sure you're sharing it, and you'll get the extra signups, okay? So with that, we are now going to announce this week's winner. I'm so excited. Yeah, Jake. it's kind of like uh, the first weekly giveaway to any <laughs> podcast listener or viewer. It's, it's a big and fifty bucks SSPI where it goes a long way. It really does. I, I, I've mentioned before I was able to buy eye protection, you know, eye pro for the range for my entire family with one gift certificate. So it was really really cool. All right, here we go. I am picking a random winner right now. Byron H. Byron H. I have in, in your email address is a Hotmail. People still use Hotmail, Jacob. <laughs> That's it's okay. That's okay, Byron. All right. So congrats, Byron H. Now, I'm not saying the full name. We're, we're kind of, you know, we're sensitive of, of people's identities online here. And uh, so, Byron, you are going to be emailed uh, within minutes of the conclusion of this podcast. So you'll receive an email saying, congrats, you are the winner of this $50 gift certificate. Uh, if we don't hear from you within a few days, well, I'd, uh, you're going to miss out, buddy. So make sure you'll see that email and reply and let us know that you're excited to get that gift certificate. We'll get you that coupon code over to you right away. All right. So congrats, Byron H., winner of this week's and the first ever Tuesday weekly giveaway $50 gift certificate SSP eyewear. Those of you that did not win, I'm so sorry, but make sure you go get signed up for this next one. So, with that, that was fun. I'm looking forward yeah. to doing this every week. Ah, I can, I'm like breathing a sigh of relief because I'm just so excited. All right, so that wraps up today's episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast. Thanks for being a part of it with us. Uh, we appreciate all of you, and uh, yeah. We'll see you Thursday. This Thursday, we have an interview with Adam Kraut. Uh, he is with the Gun Collective. If you're, if you're familiar with uh, uh, that uh, YouTube channel, pretty popular channel, and uh, he's also an attorney, uh, handles a number of firearms-related cases, not really self-defense cases. He handles cases that are about like the guns themselves and, and accessories attached to them and things like that, so pretty interesting stuff. Is also running for the board of directors of the NRA, so he has an interesting perspective to to bring to us about all of that. So, looking forward to having Adam on the show on Thursday. You can join us live on Facebook at twelve noon Mountain Standard Time, or of course, as always, catch us on the podcast feed after the fact. So, with that, 
a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. that laws vary from place to place and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.